Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you the guest speaker from the October 2022 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. W. Sidney Robinson is the author of Muckracker, The Scandalous Life and Times of W.T. Stead. And his talk this evening is about that famous journalist and focuses in particular on the 1885 newspaper serialization The Maiden Tribute of Babylon. So without further ado, let's venture into the Crutched Friar on Aldgate Street, which was rather noisy this Saturday evening, and listen to W. Sidney Robinson on W.T. Stead. Well, welcome everybody to the October 2022 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. So tonight we are delighted to welcome William Sidney Robinson, who William is an award-winning author, broadcaster, and journalist. His first book, The Scandalous Life and Times of W.T. Stead, Britain's first investigative journalist, is the subject of tonight's talk. His book was awarded the Political Biography of the Year at the Total Politics and Paddy Power Awards in 2013. And his second book, called The Last Victorians, A Daring Reassessment of the 20th Century, and more on that shortly, he writes the Sunday Times, the Spectator, and the Times Literary Supplement. Now, we're all aware that when it comes to the Whitechapel murders of 1888, there are very few primary sources. And so, as a result, we have to rely heavily on the reports in the newspapers at the time. One of which was the Pall Mall Gazette, whose editor was W.T. Stead. Now, Stead is a fascinating character. He actually died on the Titanic in the 15th of April, 1912. He was not only Britain's first investigative journalist, but he also epitomizes the professional strengths and its dark side. He was at times brilliant, using publicity to secure reform, as well as appalling, bending the truth as he abandoned accuracy for a melodramatic Ladies and gentlemen, William Robinson. Tony, for that wonderful introduction, uh, and thank you to you and all your team for organising today. I'm very conscious in speaking to the Whitechapel Society that I'm speaking to people who know a lot about this period, probably read a lot of the books. I've read all of the books that I've read, uh, so you know, I look forward to questions afterwards. I've deliberately decided to talk about um, the significance of the Maiden Tribute campaign, for which Stead is most famous. And of course, aspects of the Whitechapel murders will certainly come up. So, uh, there are going to be three parts to my talk, um, and I'm going to try not to, to, to sort of drone on too much about Stead, but uh, the three parts are going to be these. So, after a few words about why I uh, felt the need to write a biography of Stead, I will first talk about who exactly he was, then I'll explain uh, what I think the significance of this famous newspaper campaign was. And finally, I'll say something about his life after that famous sensation. So, in terms of why I felt the need to write a book about W.T. Stead, now, um, I would love to be like the great 18th century historian Edward Gibbon, who said he was sitting outside the Temple of Jupiter, and he heard the uh, friars uh, singing vespers in the Temple of Jupiter. He said he wanted to write the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Now, my motivation for writing a biography of Stead was not quite as lofty as that. 
um, at the time of writing a book about 10 years ago, I really wanted to be, be a journalist myself. And um, I thought, you know, how could I maybe, you know, scale the busy web of modern-day futurism? And I thought, a book about famous journalists would be a brilliant way in. Uh, it turned out not to be the best strategy, but it did cure me the desire to actually become a journalist. So uh, it did have a purpose. So why did I write the book? Well, the first thing that struck me when I just sat down to do this, uh, all those years ago it seems, uh, was, you know, uh, I studied a lot of history, read a lot of history, and yet, then I thought, who, who are the famous journalists in history? I barely could name any, okay? I could name Dr. Johnson, Karl Marx, Voltaire, but all three of those are famous for something else. Got a famous journalist in America, William Du Bois, civil rights activist, but um, famous for being a civil rights activist rather than being an activist. And almost any journalist that I could think of, and I suspect many people in the same way, had done something besides um, journalism. So that was definitely something that struck me as um, interesting. That basically, I wanted to write a biography of journalists. Who would I choose? And after a little bit of preliminary research, you know, I, I read about some great editors like C.P. Scott, Manchester Guardian, Harold Evans, of course, but I was looking for like, historical journalists. I did contact Harold Evans, and he helped a lot before he said he's uh, But John Delaney up there, the center, little one, famous Victorian editor of the Times, the books about him. There are lots of books about journalists, but I just felt I didn't have much to add to those uh, well-known, relatively well-known journalists. But then, out of the blue, I remember the name W.T. Stead, and I suppose that, like most people, I, I knew the name because, not only because of the uh, monument uh, on the embankment, it was also one with Central Park in New York, um, but mostly just because if you read a lot of books about the Victorian period, uh, as we all do, uh, he does feature a lot. And it's usually quite um, dismissive, quite short remarks. The scandal mongering journalist on said something like that, really uh, briefly dealt with. And I thought, well, surely there's something more to be said here. And I, I sort of dug away at it, and I thought, you know, actually, there's a lot that could be, could be said about him. Um, Simon Sharma uh, wrote, uh, obviously, a three volume history of Britain. And in the third volume, we've got to stand as a muckraker. And uh, that is the, the title I use for my book. But I just wanted to, to, to get beyond these uh, dismissive terms. A bit ironic, really, uh, I suppose. But the, the publishers decided to title it. So, muckraker, it does sound interesting, and there's something to it, but there, there is more to it than that. Um, I want to focus on his career as an investigative journalist. So, who was W.T. Stead? Well, William Thomas Stead was born in rural Northumberland in July 1849, the son of, a, of an austere, proudly self-educated, non-conformist minister, also called William, and his wife, Isabella Jobson, whose family owned and farmed land in the area. Stead was the second of five children, and the family who moved to Howden, east of Newcastle, um, when the future editor was an infant, were brought up in a strict Puritan fashion. So, um, I don't know if you would approve of uh, our meeting in a pub tonight. He's not a great goer of pubs. He said that he didn't ever drink. He was very 
very austere about all of these sorts of things, and he wanted everyone to know that as well, which is something I'm going to return to later. Um, he was brought up to believe that the, the theatre, which he had a particular hatred for, was the devil's chapel. Um, cards were the devil's prayer book, and novels were kind of devil's Bible. So it wasn't the jolliest time up there for him, uh, just eating in the castle. Um, his dad was probably a very well-known figure in that uh, mining community just outside of the city, um, just, make, just looking into everyone's morals and just making sure everyone was doing the right thing. And, you know, if they're going to go drinking, just to be sure that it's not too often, not too much, you know, that kind of thing. It was very much about keeping an eye on everyone. And I think that rubbed off on his son as well. Um, I managed to get a bit of a, um, a fragment of one of his father's sermons. There must have been hundreds of these, but this is just incredible. So, one of his sermons said, When you and I meet at the throne of God, the judge says, said, Do you want that man? I should say, Yes. September 1874, So, really righteous, self righteous, very uh, closed uh, world that he grew up in. And, uh, the boy was, was sort of uh, the opposite of being Molly Cole. He was you know, kind of um, sort of almost a kind of 17th century world. Surrounded by a modern world, in the said household, it was like it was the kind of Oliver Cromwell, who was a big hero of his. And uh, his, his father belonged to the Congregationalist Church, which proudly traced their origins back to the times of. Uh, Oliver Cromwell, and the idea that they have their own way of doing things, and not listen to anyone else, and just should be purely owned by their congregation. So that's why they're the Congregationalists. Uh, I must admit, I couldn't get a picture of the Congregational Chapel in Howden, but that is Howden Chapel, but I don't think that that's the same one as the Congregational Chapel. So there are lots of rival sects in Little Howden, and we'll see that this sort of rubs off on the sun sort of sense of righteousness, more righteous than, than anyone else. So he only had a few um, years at school. His father was sort of very keen on self-education, but for a couple of years he went to Silcote School in Wakefield. But he ended up, um, age 14, going to, to work as a clerk in Newcastle. And I think that was probably the time when he got his first taste of real modern Victorian poverty and deprivation. And as a young man who'd been brought up in this uh, 17th century hothouse, uh, I think he must have gone there, uh, and it would have been a hell of a shock for him. And um, having been instilled with all these good ideals uh, on a small scale in Houghton, he went to Newcastle thinking that it would change the world there and it would save everything. That was very much his kind of complex. He was always wanting to help out and do things, which is admirable. But, um, you know, to live one's life, you have to be able to, at some point, you know, not interfere with everything that's going on around you, like I said. But um, W.T. Stead didn't take that view, so he was trying to help everybody. What happened when he was working at this uh, shipping, uh, the, the shipping merchant for a few years, and um, he had a, an encounter with a local man who um, professed to sort of want to improve himself, become a better person, instead help this person give him money, give him a Bible, and helped out. But the man actually just took the money, ran away, and left the Bible behind 
room where we'd set them up. So it's first sort of projects on saving someone from the outcast of society, the outcast that ended in a fiasco. And this young man, so incensed by this, so incensed by this, that he dashed off this article, which is actually his first published uh, piece of journalism. Um, and it's interesting just to pause and look at this. So I'm going to be talking about Stead as this great campaigner, does great things, great tries to improve society, but got to realize that his views are pretty uh, uh, extreme. And rather than being kind of sympathetic voice for the poor and outcast, he did take very authoritarian views. So he said that people that just give money to, to the poor, the indiscriminate charity like that is a fruitful parent of vice, indolence, ignorance, falsehood, and crime. He says that people that take this sort of charity, dirty, vicious, drunken, deceitful, and that they're basically <coughs> breeding up this criminal army. And it's really quite shocking stuff. Uh, and and you know, when we look at Stead and what he's doing, trying to help everyone all the time, it's really got to be Stead's way, or else you're going to hell, basically. And that is the, the really scary thing about Stead, is that he's got this absolute certainty about what is right. He wants to improve everything, improve everyone the whole time. Um, what was interesting about writing the book is that sometimes you know, the self-improvement of himself sometimes seems to be a bit better. And uh, yeah. sometimes he took that out a little bit on, on other people, to touch on that a little bit. Um, so that um, article appeared in the Northern Echo, Darlington, which is not that far from Newcastle. And um, for, for some time, uh, the editor of the Northern Echo was accepting uh, articles from Stead this guy, I think he's called Copleston, not a famous uh, editor, but you've got the impression he was a bit lazy. He had this young guy who's just inundating him with articles, and he just used them with, with unsigned articles. Instead of cut them out and send them to everyone in Newcastle, so they knew it was him. But it's all anonymous, meant to be anonymous. And Stead uh, got this sort of reputation. And when the editor decided to emigrate to America, the owner of the Northern Echo, well, who is this guy that for almost a year now has been sending him all these powerful articles? And uh, he went up to housing and he was introduced to the um, minister, father. And the father said, I've never written anything for the Northern Echo. I want my son, who was uh, young, instead was out playing cricket, apparently. Relaxation to play cricket. So they, was, they were surprised by how young he was, but they thought, okay. Um, you know, you've clearly got a, a flair for journalism. And they appointed an editor of the Northern Echo, he was 21, on several conditions. So he had like a mentor who'd done it for many more years, he visited other newspaper editors in the region. And I should just say that while it is quite extraordinary to be 21 as a newspaper editor, uh, this was the era of where provincial journalism was just expanding at an incredible rate. Because only about 10 years before, it was almost impossible to print a newspaper because of all these taxes on knowledge. But the Liberal government had basically ended those newspaper taxes. So suddenly there were all these newspapers being sold for a penny rather than, say, five times that amount. And just made it possible to have so many new um, publications. And the people that were stepping up to uh, edit provincial newspapers tended to be that kind of very self-righteous, um, non-conformists, often Methodists, um, kind of hinterland of people who wanted to speak to people. 
and he realised that, that people weren't maybe attending church in the way that they used to, and as Thomas Carlyle had said, that the press was the new pulpit. So it wasn't that surprising to find the son of a nonconformist minister in an editorial chair, even though he was only 21. I suppose the much more interesting thing is why 10 years later, this pious provincial newspaper editor is invited to be the deputy and soon chief uh, editor of a very staid London newspaper called the Pall Mall Gazette, uh, edited by this fellow here, John Morley. Very different sort of thing. Even the name, the Pall Mall Gazette, very exclusive, very elitist. It, it actually had been invented in the novel of Thackeray, uh, and he said the Pall Mall Gazette was written by a gentleman or gentleman, and it wasn't really anything like the Northern Echo. Instead, who was a total outsider in this world of clubs and, uh, you know, um, Spencer Educations, Oxford, Virginia, Morley was a big star at Oxford. It just seems really strange that that happened, and I really struggled to, to kind of get the blocking back. Now, in my book, I put rather a lot of emphasis on the fact that just before Stead's appointment, um, I mean, he had done things in, in um, in Darlington. He had really got behind this movement in the late 1870s, where basically Britain had been allied with the Ottoman Empire. So the Turkish rulers had committed some atrocities in places like Bulgaria. So these Bulgarian horrors, it's a big story, it's an international story. But obviously, Stetson Darlington is a long way from it. But he really, really went on about it in a way that others didn't. So whereas other people were sort of Say that isn't it terrible what's happened? We've got these figures in that you know, so many people have been killed in Bulgaria. Stead wrote it up as, as a kind of story. You know, I'm seeing the kind of the sun is going down across the villages in Bulgaria. The the dogs are, are eating the bodies of the, of the people. You know, it was really vivid, and some people wonder where he's getting all this from. But it had an impact, and that agitation Stead kind of took hold of it did get him some recognition. The outcome of that was that what, what Stead and the followers of, of uh, his campaign wanted was for Britain to stop being allies with Turkey and to become allies with Russia. So it was kind of big high politics stuff. And in my book, I kind of, you know, fresh out of university, I thought this was this was the way. I sort of thought, well, why is he so keen on the Russian alliance? And it turned out that there was this lady, Madame Olga Novikov, who's probably the natural daughter of the Tsar. And um, she was well-connected in London. She spoke with politicians and so on. And Stead managed to you know, basically become her protege. And um, it was more than that, actually. It turned out that they actually had an affair, although Stead was married quite a stage. So that didn't feature in the autobiography. But um, that's what was going on. And uh, Stead was having this affair with this rather striking Russian lady, and she might have had a word with the liberal elites that had a lot of power in the newspapers, and I thought that's probably why he was appointed. But I, well, there's something in that. I think the less the racy explanation is that um, the liberal elites in London, people like uh, Cobden and Bright, as you can see here, had been saying for many, many years that what London newspapers needed was a real honest Englishman to come and edit a newspaper. 
and they're all these editors and they've got coats and stuff. They didn't understand the people. They didn't understand England. They were in a little bubble. And what they needed was to get some honest, straight-talking man. That's just how they thought in those days. Who was going to step up and, and, and edit the newspaper? And um, I don't think it's a coincidence that the editor of the Palmer Gazette, who I mentioned a minute ago, John Morley, had just written Richard Cobden's biography. And in that, I mean, Cobden's going on and on about the. Uh, I've got a quote from it somewhere where he sort of talks about the the sort of deadening aspect of London, that all of these uh, editors are just corrupted and they end up being um, the sort of puppets of club land and political cliques. Uh, he's talked about the atmosphere of the clubs and political cliques that poisons even the most liberal uh, London newspapers. Because these guys are very rich and they afford a lot of money into newspapers and they kept on getting editors who then got their own ideas and... and uh, they just were not happy. So they wanted to have someone that they could really trust. And Stead fitted the bill rather well. And they definitely made assumptions about him. They thought that he'd be very honest, very reliable, and basically not causing too much trouble as well. And um, I thought it sort of close with um, revealing uh, real detail that when the owner of the Power said to Stead that I want, to, want you to come to London so we can talk about your contracts. You know, my calendar's pretty busy at the moment, but we can meet on a Sunday uh, afternoon. And there's, a, there's under no circumstances could I meet you on a Sunday. And they were sort of like, oh, okay, well, so this guy's going to be a bit different to your usual um, worldly editor. But I think certainly once he came to London, such scruples uh, started to, to soften for said. And I think, you know, uh, and he would have a little glass of beer occasionally, and uh, he started to sort of lighten up a little bit. But it wasn't necessarily um, all for the good. I mean, he had this terrible habit of sort of saying things like, "Oh, isn't it terrible that I never go up to town on a Sunday?" But you know, the Prince of Wales wants to have lunch with me, so I'm going to make an exception for him. So he was very keen on that, and he loved that whole world. And he'd love to, to spend time with those sorts of people, but then to kind of criticise them. Um, it happened that he was good friends with a lady who was having an affair with the future, um, Edward VII. And um, he, he said to her, listen, you can use your influence to make you a better person, and we'll work together on this. So he had some crazy sort of ideas. But some people definitely took a dislike to him because he was constantly going on about morality. But you just got little glimpses of that wandering off with like some mistress of the king, the future king, and it's just very odd. So this was a letter that appears in the Daily Mirror uh, after he died. It apparently was an open letter published in his own lifetime, but I wasn't able to find it. But it's the sort of letter that was sent to said, you know, like your father, the devil, you so tears broadcast. I don't quite know what that means. Well, good men sleep. And many of them um, falling into the propitious soil of youth and innocence are bound to spring up and multiply. If Socrates is put away as a corrupt youth, how much more do you deserve to be bowstrung, oh, you pernicious swipe, Pharisee, hypocrite? So he definitely made some enemies, and uh, that was all part of his, uh, I don't know what the word is, I'm going to say mystique, but not exactly his image. Everyone hated him, and he kind of liked that. 
and knew he was right and they were wrong. Um, so let, that brings us on neatly to his most famous campaign, this maiden tribute campaign about the very serious and horrific subject of the sexual exploitation of children in Victorian London. And um, you know, this is this is really what I'm here to talk about tonight. And it is undoubtedly the biggest sensation of his whole career. Um, so what was it? Well, in his newspaper, he said that he's going to be talking about a subject which is very difficult, and he has set up a special and secret commission of inquiry to look into this appalling uh, subject uh, that dare, no one dare even speak about. So that commission of inquiry sounds very official. And it is true that he um, had lots of names in the role, like Bramwell Booth of the Salvation Army, Josephine Butler was uh, referenced. He put together a long list of um, potential, by the way, committee members. You know, like the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster was on the list, but I don't think he knew much about it. He got a letter saying, you know, you're in on this. And he, he was very keen to make out like it was a committee, but in reality it was purely himself. He called himself the, the chief director, and the whole thing was just this one man's manic crusade against a very real bad thing that was happening in London at the time. And even the title of it, the full title, was very much said to device. It's called the, the Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon, a mixture of Greek legend and biblical history, pure set. And so uh, that. That sort of sets the scene a bit, and the, the Saturday before he launched the campaign, it was actually the day before his birthday, it was in July 1885, he said, I just have to warn you readers that I've got a ghastly story to tell you about the latest criminal developments of modern rights, and if you're squeamish or prudish or prefer to live in a fool's paradise of imaginary innocence and purity, selfishly oblivious or follow religion. Don't buy the newspaper next week. It won't agree with you. So stay away from it. And you've got a quote from, from Milton. So this is going to be worse than anything you can imagine. So obviously people at times said, well, he's just trying to stir up uh, sales. And of course, people did something. Well, what is going to be published on Monday? Um, but then again, it's true that some people did stop taking it. W.H. Smith, who was in the cabinet at the time, just stopped selling it in the shop. But there's, there's no doubt that they, there was hot demand, and uh, you know, in those days, with copyright laws being very relaxed, uh, even pirated copies, it was a, it was a big sensation. So, um, what's significant about it? Well, I think that one thing that's significant about it is that Stead was actually quite conscious of the power that he had. Because the reason why he chose to run this campaign at this time is that the Liberal government had just uh, collapsed. They too were living through kinds of political turmoil, and uh, it looked like they'd be an election very soon. And that meant that the Criminal Law Amendment Act, which had been in Parliament going back and forth to the Lords of Commons for some years, uh, was probably going to be, you know, killed in the dying Parliament. But this Criminal Law Amendment Act, among other things, was designed to raise the age of consent for girls from 13 to 16. And most people believe that this was a very good thing that should be done, partly to stop these uh, illicit things from happening. 
it's, it's quite sobering to think that that's just one week in a, in a career that went from 1870 to 1905. Uh, I printed it all out, and it was 60 sides of A4 paper. So it's, it's a long read, and, and it is really horrific reading even today. Uh, and I'm just going to just show you a few of the quotes to give you a sense of why people were shocked. I think people should be shocked about this today, uh, but in 1885 it was really shocking. So it's very repetitive, I would say. If you look at the first one, it's very clear what the actual crime that is happening there is. You know, these kind of terrible things are described. But I think it's interesting to look at the kind of perpetrator, the wealthy customer, and the procuress, this eminently respectable lady, do these terrible things. It's, it's, and it's all kind of like shouting, and it's all kind of like big bang headlines about what's going on bad houses where terrible things are happening. Uh, the second one is, a, again, very similar in that it's about terrible crimes which are happening out of, you know, you know, hidden in plain sight, terrible crimes that are happening. But I think that what's interesting about the second one is this the way Sted juxtaposes these horrors of you know, brutal, violent acts with very kind of banal, homely kind of um, conversation. So, you know, he says that this lady, this respectable lady, there's lots of respectable ladies and gentlemen in these stories. She says, you know, well, you can read what she says, but you know, she's just kind of making out that this is all just very normal. And this undercover reporter finds out all of this, has these very kind of mundane conversations with these ladies. So don't worry, you can do whatever you want in there. And there's lots of that, but when the trial happened, a lot of the quotes there just sort of fell apart. I think there was, there was one uh, lady who gave this very eloquent speech in the articles, but when she was in court, she actually couldn't speak English very well. So instead, kind of made up quite a few quotes for sure. Um, and then the final one, I just include just to give you a flavor of what his enemies said. It's like, how does this story actually further your cause? So it's about an adult lady who, who read what it says, you know, the sense that, you know, she consented to, to, to be beaten. The question is, why, why was that relevant to his campaign? And uh, one left wing journalist said that he had actually gone around to some clubs and got the books of the Marquis de Sade and had just cut and pasted some stories. And there's something in that. When you think it's uh, 64 pages of this, People were shocked, appalled, horrified, but yet there, there, there certainly was uh, terrible things happening. So it's a, it's a difficult one, you know. Uh, and I think that you know everyone can make their own decisions uh, on that. Um, at the centre of the story was this young lady, Eliza Armstrong. At the time of the story, she was only thirteen. Instead, uh, was there with his family at around this time had uh, basically managed to get an accomplice from the Salvation Army uh, who had reformed herself. And he said to this lady, you needed to basically find a parent who would just basically sell their daughter for purposes. And so, instead of failed in this, he said to this young lady, Rebecca Jarrett, he said, look, you've got to do it. God wants you to do it. You know, we need a story here. And she said, okay, you know, this is said, I will, I will definitely do it. So, she goes into the East End and she manages to come back with Eliza Armstrong. It's a prototype of Eliza Doolittle. And the idea is that they're going to save this girl. Like she's now, she's not going to go to a terrible place, but 
for the purposes of the story, they did actually move around in a way that was a bit very questionable and came up at the trial. So the kind of mock abduction, what would happen? She ended up in France. But um, nothing, no, no harm actually came to her. But the whole point of the story is that look how easy it is to do this. That there are parents in the East End who just sell their children for five pounds. Isn't it terrible? But of course, at the trial, you know, it wasn't quite like that. And it's just interesting that you know the actual evidence of that this had happened wasn't clear. So, for example. The defence was that they were told that the, the girl was going to go and become a servant of the household, quite a normal thing. And the girl had even written some letters to her parents to say, yeah, everything's fine. So the story didn't break down, but partly because of George Bernard Shaw and the play Pygmalion, this whole thing about rescuing this girl became the main part of the story. Maybe, maybe that eclipsed a lot of other things. Um, maybe it took attention away from the real crimes that were happening. I know some of the supporters said, why did you make this the main part of the story? We didn't need to do this. We had enough evidence already. But this became the story. And in a tearful exchange, the parents of Eliza Armstrong came to the Stead house in Wimbledon and basically said, give us our daughter back. And they said, okay, well, you can have your daughter back. I'm going to sign a document saying that nothing bad happened to her. And I said, okay. They were not happy, and the trial happened, and it ended badly for Stead. So, as you can see, it ended badly for Stead. So his life after the Maiden Tribute campaign, well, here he is in his prison uniform around um, 1910, and that's not because Stead spent um, 25 years in prison, okay? He was only actually in that uniform for about two days, okay? The Home Secretary at the time, felt that, you know, he'd done a lot. After all, the pressure of the articles did actually mean that the Criminal Law Amendment Act was passed. And so they didn't want to punish him too much for this. They said, you know, it's just ridiculous. The way he did it, the actions was totally reckless. So you're going to be in prison for, I think, six months, but we'll do a special deal. You'll have a comfortable prison. So he left Coldbar Fields Prison, where he'd worn that, and he'd been, you know, roughed up a little bit for a day or two. And then he gets to go to basically what was then a sort of hotel, a Holloway prison, um, and um, he could wear his own clothes. He had a servant to make his fire. He could go on editing the newspaper, and he loved writing to cardinals and prime ministers from Holloway prison. Um, and of course, he reveled in that all. So I don't think you should feel too sorry for Seth. Um, so let. You know, he lived for another 25 years after the, the campaign, but he never uh, came close to matching that sort of fame in notoriety. His old editor, that sucky gentleman, sort of thing, John Morley, totally cut this from him, and in his memoirs, instead gets one line, says, for a season he became the most famous journalist in the country, but it came at a big cost, because no one really wanted him anymore. He was just too reckless. So... He just had no kind of traction after that. Uh, he then set up all his own magazines and things like that. It was all about him. Everything was Stead's world. And he, you know, that's, that's in about 1905, seven years before his death as a passenger of the Titanic. He became obsessed with spiritualism. And for the last decade or so of his life, he really, really thought this was the future and that he had a special power 
Um, I mean, I've spent quite a lot of time reading through some of this stuff, and it's pretty unhinged. Um, in fact, unfortunately, we've lost his original document from this period. After he died, his wife particularly, like, I just do not want a biography of this husband. A great guy and everything, did his bit for the criminal law and then an act, but no biography, please. And so the poor guy who got asked to do it had this long correspondence with the family, it was just a complete nightmare. Um, but he did leave some notes and said that he'd seen that basically Stead believed that a spirit communicated with him and Stead would basically go into these trances where he'd start writing from the other side and he had this friend called Julia. And Julia, who he'd known in her life, she was communicating with him. And he would sit there with like, you know, other newspaper editors, politicians, and tell them this stuff. And then just thought he's totally lost the plot. And uh, George Bernard Shaw said that you know, he could never move on from 1885. Just totally deranged towards the end of his life. And it really was quite sad. But then again, you would still have flashes of the old fire during the Boer War. He was one of the main sort of uh, anti war agitators. He said that this was a terrible imperialist war and that Britain shouldn't be fighting it. And the Boers were very brave people defending their land. That won a lot of enemies, but it was a brave thing to say. Because some people said, yeah, but you were one of the big imperialists at the beginning. You were writing articles to, to build the navy, to build the empire. So there were some contradictions there. Uh, he was also very worried about uh, brewing tensions in the war. Militarism was a big feature of those years before 1914. And he set up things like the Anglo-German Friendship Society. You know, he wanted to make sure that basically the powers of Europe wouldn't fall out and advocated world peace and he managed to tap Andrew Carnegie with a lot of money to kind of support world peace. But I think one of the saddest efforts I saw was this great American industrialist, one of the richest men in the world, was trying to help him. He's got some issues, you know, things haven't worked out for him since the great days of Fleet Street. Um, why don't we try and get him some sort of job in this, like, Peace Crusades, the World Organization, the honorary presidents, and someone wrote back and said, trouble is that just to be just to have his name on their paper associated with a bad person. You know, thankfully he's got no power anymore to do harm but or to do good either. So it was a quite a sad end really. But then he's off on the Titanic at the end of his life. Bizarre. He said he was going to meet the president and that was all him and President Taft were very personal and be talking about a conference with him. But there's no record that President Taft was any community ballot. But some peace campaigners paid for his ticket on the Titanic. So he was a first class passenger there. So just to sort of wrap things up, you know, I think that what we can say about Sam is he was a, a one off character. Um, he did do a lot of good in, in this one particular area, but maybe he didn't do it in the most pleasant way. Um, he was certainly one of Dr. Johnson's good haters, even failing to develop real friendships among his colleagues in Fleet Street. And I think you know, the Whitechapel Society would be interested to note that when the Whitechapel murders happened a few years after his campaign, one of his main points was that, look, all of you editors who said, how can you publish this stuff with the main tribute? You now publish really grisly, gruesome details of all of the murders. So he did kind of have something to say there, and it was very quite powerful. 
But, um, you know, certainly a loner and an outsider, Steph certainly was, but through the Movement Tribute campaign, he undoubtedly made a lasting impact on both the history of Britain and the history of journalism in general. Thank you. And that was W. Sidney Robinson on the scandalous life and times of W.T. Stead. I would like to thank Mr. Robinson, Steve Ratty, Tony Power, and the entire committee of the Whitechapel Society for making the release of this talk possible. If you would like more information about joining the Whitechapel Society, please visit their website at whitechapelsociety.com. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org, where you will find hundreds of conference presentations, roundtable discussions, author interviews, book reviews, and so much more about the Whitechapel murders, Victorian history, and true crime. And I'd like to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.